what is the singular concept that differentiates Christianity from every other world religion? It's simple. One word, grace. As John Newton so eloquently penned, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He continues, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. The very idea that God's favor was never designed to be earned, but instead always to be given and is therefore designed to be enjoyed and never maintained is one of the most radical and revolutionary concepts that's ever been presented to humanity. As Martin Luther once wrote, Christ is no Moses. No exactor, no giver of laws, but a giver of grace, a savior. He is infinite mercy and goodness, freely and bountifully given to us. And yet, how tragic it is that many of today's churches, and many of us, Christians, have intentionally, but in some other instances, unintentionally, been substituting, a tragic substitute, of the freeing, transforming gospel of grace, God's amazing grace, with a perversion. That we've been substituting what is so sweet to what is so sour, a distorted, what we'll call anti-gospel, that only serves to bind and stagnate. In actuality, a replacement gospel. An anti-gospel is not the opposite of the gospel. It's a replacement gospel, and yet it's no good news at all. For context, and at the beginning of our study through the book of Galatians, our study of the life of grace, I want to explain right from the onset the various and in many ways destructive schemes that Christians often employ and church leaders often teach by which we distort the true nature of grace. And in my study prep, you'll hear so many pastors allude to things, describe things, and it can get very convoluted and confusing. So I've worked really hard to try to just define how grace gets distorted in three very simple sentences. First, and we'll be going back to these over the next several months as we're working our way through Galatians. But first, there are those who hold to what I will call the anti-gospel of grace and do these things. These people would say that I'm saved and sanctified by grace and the things that I do. If someone ever says grace and, then they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the true nature of grace. But others herald what I'll call as the anti-gospel of grace, but don't do these things. 
These would say that I'm saved by grace. We're not going to argue that point, but I'm sanctified. I made more into the image of Christ by the things that I refrain from doing. If you ever hear someone say grace, but they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the true nature of grace. And yet, sadly, others still practice what we'll call the anti-gospel of grace so I can do anything. I'm saved and I'm sanctified by God's grace, which means that I can do whatever I want. I'm free. There's no restrictions on what I can do. Well, each of these are subtle and their development and crafty and their implementation. Understand each of these three are a perversion, a distortion of the true gospel of grace, period. Nothing comes after it. It's grace, period. It's not grace and do these things. Grace, but don't do these things. Grace, so I can do anything. It's grace, period. Nothing gets added to the sentence. That is the good news of the gospel. That while I'm saved, and because I've been sanctified by God's grace alone, it's that that serves to transform not just who I am, but then subsequently what I want to do. These creeping distortions of grace, these three, are the very issues that prompted Paul to write to the Galatians. And by default, are inspiring our verse-by-verse study through Paul's letter to the Galatians titled, Outlaw Church, A Study of Life and Grace. This morning, in order to establish the context for the letter to the Galatians, we're going to spend our time Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. We're told that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, let me just give you a little bit of backdrop. Paul and Barnabas have just concluded Acts 14, their very first missionary journey that took them with the gospel message into a region, an area known as Galatia, predominantly a Gentile area, bringing the gospel, planting churches. Galatia, it's not one specific city. It's a region. Today, it's present-day southern Turkey. Contains cities that if you were with us in our travels through Acts, you might recognize cities like Pergia and Attilia and Pamphylia, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Lyconia and Tarsus, which was in Cilicia. Now, following this experience, this first missionary journey, the gospel going to the Gentiles, and then coming back to their home base, their home church, they're in Antioch. We're told, Luke, our author, is very specific that certain men came down from Judea. 
Later in Acts 15, we'll learn these men were believers from the sect of the Pharisees. Please note, these men teaching this particular anti-gospel were pharisaical Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but had also remained dedicated to the law of Moses. Luke tells us that they traveled 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch in order to, quote, look at it again, teach the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, sadly, while many present this group as misguided legalists, you know, men adding to the word of God, in reality, they're nothing more than heretics. You'll see this as it plays out. Their claim was that the Gentile members of this church in Antioch and the Gentile members of these churches Paul and Barnabas had just planted throughout Galatia were not saved, quote, unless they were circumcised. In a sense, they were teaching a gospel of salvation by Jesus through works. To be a Christian Yes, you had to accept Jesus' atoning work on the cross, that work on your behalf, but you also had to practice the Jewish law. <laughs> With this in mind, there is no wonder that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. The language here indicates that the argument on this topic, this issue, was about to come to blows. Like Paul was taking off tunics, rolling up his sleeves, getting his, his knuckles ready. I mean, they were about to go at it. Paul, Barnabas, very serious about what's taking place. They were enraged at what these men were teaching the people. And here's why. Because what these Judaizers were teaching was something so fundamental that it was tampering with the most critical issue of all the mechanism by which a person is saved and becomes like Jesus. Obviously, the issue was of such great importance for many of these Gentiles had just become followers of Jesus through the preaching of Paul under a pretense that it was, quote, only through Jesus that forgiveness of sins and justification might be attained. So they decide, they determined that to get down to the issue, to resolve this once and for all, to address it, Head on, they sent Paul and Barnabas, certain others, they send them to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. It's the context for chapter 15. Now, before we continue, in order for you to understand why we're beginning a study in Galatians, in Acts, keep in mind that what takes place in Jerusalem, Acts 15, the decision that's made by the apostles in Jerusalem, Acts 15, would establish the framework by which Paul would later write the book of Galatians. Should also be noted, it's also the framework by which he'll write the book of Romans. If you want to try to contextualize it, think of it like this. What happens in Acts chapter 15 establishes a thesis statement by which Paul ultimately writes extensively in the book of Romans. Galatians, written before Romans, provides the cliff notes, so to speak, 
And so instead of studying Romans, we're going to cheat and just study the smaller book. Acts 15, for you note takers, is of such critical importance that Paul will provide his own description of the events that take place in Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Once again, it's important to point out the argument of those that Paul is so adamantly opposing, the very issue that will be decided in this Jerusalem council. The claim of this sect of the Pharisees was that, quote, it was necessary for the Gentiles to be, quote, circumcised and, quote, keep the law of Moses if they were to be saved from their sins. Now, keep in mind, the issue at hand, and thus the issue the apostles will make a decision concerning, was not the existence of Christian liberty or the nature of sanctification. The issue that they address is the very nature of salvation itself, which is important. Because there are those who have tried to use Acts chapter 15 to build the case, a straw man argument that grace only extends to the doctrine of salvation and not that of sanctification, that grace is not an issue when it comes to Christian liberty. Now, on a side note, please understand why this was all such a monumental issue. You see, if the apostles ruled with these Pharisees, that you had to be saved by Jesus, faith in Jesus, but also by obeying the law, Christianity in a moment would have died. What might have been born in the cradle of Judaism would have died there. Christianity would have been deemed nothing more than a sect of Judaism and frankly, really would have lost most of its appeal with the Gentile world. I mean, think about it. If salvation came by Jesus through the law, mainly the fact that you had to be circumcised, then as Paul even stated in Galatians 2, he would have run in vain, concluding that not even Titus, one of his most dedicated disciples, who was with me being a Greek, would have been compelled to be circumcised. I mean, think about how that would have floated. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He died to save you from your sins. Come down, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Outside, we have a, a little booth set up because you... <laughs> You have some foreskin that needs to be dealt with as well. Like we're just throwing on the brakes. We're not going there. The first part sounded really appealing. That latter part, not so much. You want to do what with what? Now the apostles, verse 6, and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
And God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, the Gentile disciples, which neither our fathers nor we, Jewish Christians, were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter's approach here is brilliant. He's going to weigh in on the issue, but he's not going to like declare an edict. He's not going to don his Pope hat and voice a proclamation. He's not even going to give really an opinion. All Peter does here is he calls God to the witness stand and he gives them a bit of a history lesson as to how the gospel was extended to the Gentiles to begin with. And in the process of this, Peter lays out five really compelling points. We'll go through them very quickly. First, Peter recounts that while he may have been the vessel, Acts chapter 10, by which the gospel went to Cornelius, the house of Cornelius and his family, Peter's clear that it was, quote, God, not Peter, but God, who chose that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believed. Like, Peter wasn't out evangelizing, remember? Peter was taking a cat nap on a roof after a good lunch. All that happened, and the gospel going to the Gentiles, was that God supernaturally instigated and initiated it. Peter's point is that this whole Gentile controversy hadn't started with Paul and Barnabas, hadn't even started with himself. The gospel going to the Gentiles occurred for one reason and one reason alone. God chose for it to happen. His second point, equally compelling. Peter says that God, quote, who knows the heart, acknowledged these Gentile believers by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. His argument is that the authenticity of the Gentile salvation could not, theologically, be a matter of dispute because the Holy Spirit had been given to them and just the same way as it had been given to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. In a sense, the Holy Spirit signified God's acceptance and God's pleasure in the Gentiles. Thirdly, Peter, he sees this very reality as really being further evidence that God, quote, made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because he purified their hearts by faith in the same way he had purified theirs. Peter is emphatic that the claim that these Gentiles had to now be circumcised and obey the law to be saved or even ceremonially pure was simply inconsistent with the precedent that God had already established. God poured out the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles. He purified their hearts. Why? Because they were circumcised? Because they were obeying the law? No, he did it because of their faith in Jesus alone. It's as though Paul is saying, how can you claim that God is now requiring something for salvation and purification today when he wasn't requiring these things back then? It's simply illogical, if anything. Fourthly, Peter highlights the overarching flaw now in their argument. 
I mean, what right did these Jews have to require of the Gentiles to be saved through a mechanism by which they couldn't obey themselves? Through obedience to the law. Peter says, neither our fathers nor we were ever able to bear that particular yoke. It's as though Peter is reminding them that none of them had been saved by obeying the law. That the only person, the only man to obey the law, to be justified by the law, to be sanctified by the law, was Jesus, the only one who was sinless. It's only Jesus who obeyed the law. And finally, Peter closes his disputation. He says, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And then he kind of puts the dagger in just a little further by adding, in the same manner as they're being saved. See, the ultimate flaw in their argument was a fundamental oversight concerning the very nature of their own salvation. The only reason they wanted the Gentiles to obey the law and be circumcised because they thought that that had something to do with their own salvation, their own favor with God. There is no doubt that Peter's statement that as Jews we should be saved in the same manner as the Gentiles sent a shockwave throughout the room. Everyone froze when Peter said that. Peter, no less. In making the statement, Peter's elevating the Gentiles, even above the Jews, in the whole discussion. And why? Peter is saying that the Gentiles have a better understanding of what salvation is really all about than we, for one reason. We come with so much religious baggage that they don't have. It's why often Christians fall prey to a distortion of the gospel so much quicker than pagans, than the world. It's because the world comes without religious baggage that we've created for ourselves. So we distort things in the process. Peter's clear. Not one of them had been saved because they were Jewish. Not one of them in that room that day had been saved because they had obeyed the law. Salvation only comes to both the Jew and the Gentile. And note, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the multitude kept silent. I would say so. And now they listened to Barnabas and Paul declare how many miracles and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas providing kind of substantiating evidence to the things that Peter has already discussed. And after they had become silent, James It was not the Peter, James, and John. Uh, This James happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. He gets up. He's come to prominence there in the church in Jerusalem. And he answered and he said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now James will quote from the prophet Amos to provide biblical uh, substantiating evidence to Peter's argument. So James goes back to the Bible and says everything that's happening, everything that, that Paul's been arguing, everything Barnabas has been arguing, everything Peter has been describing, the Bible, like our final authority, agrees. It concurs. 
Verse 16, after this, quoting from Amos, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preached him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, basically saying Jews are all over the place. Then it Please the apostles and elders, the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, quote, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the, the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. And here's the letter, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to now send chosen men to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now there's three things that I want to just quickly note concerning the apostles' ruling. First, there's a clear distancing, isn't there? Like by distancing themselves from the men who had come to Antioch, teaching this heresy, the apostles are making it known that they're also rejecting their message. Secondly, by aligning themselves with Paul and Barnabas, the apostles are confirming their message. So they distance themselves from the heretics they align themselves with Paul and Barnabas, and that's, they're choosing a side. James says it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then I like it, men who have risked their lives, literally men who have already laid down their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. Knowing that Paul and Barnabas had been under attack, Knowing they had been publicly questioned on a very central component of the gospel, the apostles here, they go above and beyond in expressing their public respect and admiration for Paul and Barnabas, these two missionaries, and their underlying point in doing so, they're making it clear. We reject what's being taught by these men we didn't send, and these men who we love, who've laid down their lives for Christ, Paul and Barnabas, we agree with everything that they've been teaching, everything they've been saying, mainly that salvation comes by faith in Jesus and through the grace of God alone, period. End of story. Thirdly, though, the apostles closed the letter by requesting that the brethren 
of the Gentiles. So the Gentile Christians in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia abstain. And, and then there's four things that are listed. One, from things offered to idols. Two, from blood. Three, from things strangled. And four, from sexual immorality. Now, before I attempt to explain why the apostles make this particular request, I need to first highlight a few of the details that set the stage for what I believe is being communicated and more specifically, why in his expose to the Galatians about liberty, the Apostle Paul doesn't reference any of these things at all, which is interesting. First note that these instructions given by the apostles to Gentile believers are given to specific churches, in specific areas, during a specific time. Like it is an error to apply this passage universally or even to apply it to the Galatians who are not listed. Next, the four things listed by the apostles are kind of fascinating. For they all relate to a specific set of ceremonial laws recorded in Leviticus 17 and 18 that would have been a totally... foreign concept to the Gentiles. Like the first three instructions deal with dietary restrictions. You know, the Jews were prohibited from eating certain meat, meat that had been strangled, meat that had been sacrificed to idols. They were required to only eat meat that was considered kosher or clean, without blood, without strangulation. In regards to sexual immorality, clearly we're to live pure lives, but this is probably more a reference uh, to a common practice in the first century of, of intermarriage within family members, kind of saying, don't do that, not cool. Don't shack up with your sister, your brother. Doesn't really work. Finally, you should note that the language used in the letter indicates that full, the, these four instructions were presented as mere recommendations. Look at it again. Like It's not a law. It's not even a rule. It's not a mandate. It's a suggestion. The apostles have already made it clear that no one, Jew or Gentile, was bound by the law, the law of Moses. However, they do express that, look at it, quote, if you keep yourself from these things, these four things, you do well. Now the question. And this is what's relevant for us this morning. Why did the apostles deem it necessary for these Gentile Christians to abstain from these four things? While some believe the exhortation was aimed at maintaining unity within a group of churches comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers. You know, to to ignore these type of arguments in the future the one that had arisen in Antioch. You know, that they, that they kind of are saying to the Gentiles, hey, lay us the headaches here, please. Can you just, could you guys just lay aside some liberty to prefer these, these, these Jews who kind of had issues? Like, can we just all get along? Can you lay down some of your liberty so that you don't cause a brother to stumble? There are those who present this in that, in that way, but I don't, I don't actually think that this was the case. And let me explain why. First, the commonly held belief 
that the apostles were telling these Gentile believers to forego the freedom to eat what they wanted and to adhere to Jewish dietary restrictions laid out in the law so as not to cause their Jewish brethren to stumble? That doesn't actually seem to be shared by the believers in Antioch who received the letter, nor does it seem to be supported later by the Apostle Paul. It actually seems to be an unbiblical position on this topic. Let me give you an example. Just a few weeks, so Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Judas, they go back up to Antioch. They present this letter. What ends up happening? Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. You don't have to turn that. I'll just read it for you. Paul recounts something interesting. He says that when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Dun, dun, dun. Why? Because he was to be blamed. The Pope is not infallible. He was to be blamed. Why? For before certain men came from James... Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when these men from James came to Antioch, Peter withdrew and he separated himself. Why? Because he feared those who were of the circumcision or these, these Jewish brethren. And the rest of the Jews there in Antioch played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Did you catch that? The issue wasn't that Gentile believers were eating as they always had. They clearly were. Nor was the issue that certain Jews wanted to remain kosher. Some did. It would seem that each group within this church, the church of Antioch, remained free to obey their own conscience concerning some things. Have you had an issue with meat strangled and blah, 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 blah? then abstain from it. If you didn't have a problem with it, enjoy. There's just now more bacon. That's awesome. Like you were free to just choose what you wanted to do as the Holy Spirit led you. Specifically, Peter. It would appear from context that Peter had no problem enjoying his newfound liberty. And those who came from James it seems clear they took no offense with the Gentiles enjoying theirs. So Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles and they're like, you want a BLT? And he's like, bro, I've been craving one of those for like 30 years. Hit me up. That bacon is awesome. Like they got salad. Peter's like, I need bacon bits. Like Peter is just into this. Like I'm game, uh, pork chops. Uh, this is just awesome. Peter had no problems eating whatever he wanted to eat with the Gentiles who had no problems eating whatever they wanted to eat. But when these other men showed up, something changed. Like it would seem that Paul's contention here was that Peter, who had been comfortable enjoying his liberty with Gentile brethren, changed his behavior the moment fellow Jews arrived from Jerusalem. Keep this in mind. The burr in Paul's saddle was not disunity caused because there were some people in the church that wanted to enjoy their liberty. Paul will actually defend your liberty. But Paul's burr 
was rather the hypocritical behavior being caused by legalism. They were being hypocrites. They weren't living consistently. It would seem the concern of the apostles, the ones which prompted these instructions, was not to limit liberty for the preference of a weaker brethren. The believers in Antioch didn't view it that way. But rather, these instructions were aimed at helping Gentile believers reach unbelieving Jews. The idea was that if these Gentiles were sensitive to these four ceremonial laws, whenever they were around unbelieving Jews, not Jewish Christians, then they would stand a better chance at effective evangelism. You had these towns that had Jewish populations and Gentile populations, and now the church is exploding in the Gentile world. And so the advice is like, listen, you have this liberty, you have this freedom, and the church, go for it. But when you go out there and you're trying to evangelize the Jews, you just need to know if in public you're doing these things, you're going to turn off the Jews. They're not even going to listen to you. And so if you lay these things aside for evangelistic purposes, you would do well. Simply put, I believe the entire debate concerning Christian liberty gains incredible clarity when we understand that the only biblical limitation of liberty is for the benefit of the lost and not the maintaining of church unity. I'll give you an example real quick. And the next chapter, chapter 16, Paul does something really bizarre, especially in light of everything that's been happening. Paul takes a young Gentile who's half Greek and half Jewish. His name was Timothy. And Paul takes him, wanting to bring him along on the missionary journeys, knowing they would start in the synagogues. In order for Timothy to be effective, Paul asked Timothy to lay aside a liberty so that he could be effective in reaching the lost Jews. He has Timothy circumcised. So here's Paul defending the fact that he doesn't want any Gentiles to have to be circumcised. And then what does he do the next chapter? He takes a Gentile and has him circumcised. But why? Because people were all upset about it? No. Because Timothy laid aside a liberty so he could reach someone who was going to hell for all eternity. As with the Apostle Paul, if your liberty restricts your ability to reach a group of unsaved people, God has called you to lay aside a liberty. You would do well. Now, following this ruling, and with the nature of grace made clear, salvation is through grace and grace alone. Grace, period. Paul, he goes back to Antioch. Then he launches out on a second missionary journey that brings him back through Galatia. Ultimately, this second missionary journey works his way from east to west across Turkey. He crosses the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, where he then ministers to Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. And it would appear, and I'm not going to bore you with the explanation for this if you're really interested in the dating 
of Galatians. We can talk about that at some other point, but I'm not going to bore everyone. This is my position, and I'm preaching, so just take it for what it is. But I think as Paul is in either in Athens or as soon as he arrives into Corinth, somewhere in there, that he receives a really disturbing report, probably a letter. And the report was this, that the very group of heretics that he had spent time dealing with in Antioch and then in Jerusalem had now come to the churches in Galatia. They were not only questioning his apostolic authority, but they were challenging the very nature of grace. Now, Paul's on another continent when he gets word. Impossible for him to just drop what he's doing travel back to Galatia to address these issues in person. So what does he do? He decides to write a letter. Not just to one church, not just to two churches, but every church in Galatia that this heresy was being peddled. He writes this letter, Galatians, not only to defend his apostolic authority, but mainly he writes this letter to reaffirm the true nature of God's grace as being both the mode of our justification, how we become right with God, as well as the mode of our sanctification, how we become more like Jesus, how we become more godly. He defends. Some have said this is Paul's fighting epistle. He's going to go toe-to-toe verbally to deal with those who would distort that so precious, amazing grace. And for those of you interested, Paul writing from Athens or Corinth would still substantiate, I think, a very cool position that Galatians is in actuality Paul's very first letter. So the very first epistle of Paul happens to be Galatians, which lets you know and gives you a glimpse into his heart. Now, in conclusion, with this in mind, There are two reasons a clear understanding of Acts chapter 15 is of such critical importance to our understanding of Galatians. First, because of this ruling, Acts 15, the issue had been settled. They had gone on the record that salvation comes to all men by faith in Jesus alone, and the extension of his grace brought forth through a continual relationship with him. It was not for debate. Secondly, Acts 15 helps us understand that any restriction of Christian liberty and freedom provided by God's bestowed favor, his grace, other than for the purposes of evangelism, is an affront to and reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of the very nature of God's grace. We're going to see this over the coming weeks, months, that the gospel message, the good news, the reason we give our lives and follow Jesus, the gospel, it's not that it's grace and do these things. Or grace, but don't do these things. Or even grace, so I can do anything. That's an anti-gospel. Instead, friend, because 
Jesus' atoning work on the cross satisfied a debt you and I could not pay. The righteous demand of the law. You and I, we've been set free. We've been liberated. The chains have fallen off. The burden of unneeded expectations have been removed by Jesus. You've been given God's favor. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to maintain it. You've been given it to enjoy it, to live in it, to live through it. God's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Over the next few months, we're gonna note and we're gonna study and we're gonna look at the reality that the true gospel for us outlaws who are guilty is grace, period. You can add nothing to it. You can take nothing away from it. It's grace and grace alone.